uh, what you'll find is that there'll be inline sort of async snippets, uh, synchronous JavaScript that create asynchronous in injected um, files. They won't run until the CSS is finished, so they'll find that like their A/B testing tool or their tag manager or their analytics doesn't fire until quite late, which is all being blocked by the CSS that's in flight. So that's one thing. That's one really important thing with uh, the order of the head tags is that yeah, your CSS will block your JavaScript from running, which can be which can be very detrimental. Hello and welcome to Pod Rocket. Uh, my name is Noel, and today I'm joined by Harry Roberts. Harry is a consultant, web performance engineer, designer, developer, writer, uh, and speaker. Uh, he's worked with Google, the UN, Etsy, the BBC, uh, a whole list of other companies. Welcome to the show, Harry. Hey, thank you for having me. How's it going? How are you? Good, good. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? Trying to stay cool? Uh, trying, trying and failing. Yeah, we were just talking, sort of just, I guess, before we started recording that, um, it's a it's a heat wave here in the UK, and it is intense. British people aren't built for this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm in the Midwest, and we have drastic temperature swings as well. But it sounds like you guys are getting a taste of it today, too. So we're not used to it. At least the news has got something different to talk about. The news is all just weather this and sunshine that, and it's, it's busy busy news days. Yeah, yeah. Well, we won't we won't linger on it for too long. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's jump in a little bit. So we've got a whole bunch to to, to cover today. Um, we got a, some talks you've been given and a a book I think that you that recently came out. Um, yeah. But anyway, let's jump in with your background. So tell me a little about who you are, who you are, where you come from, and how you've been spending your time recently. All right. Um, so I'm based in the north of England, a city called Leeds, which is a great little place to sort of live and work. Uh, pretty good, well, really good tech scene. So I started as a front-end developer here 12 years ago now, a long time ago. Um, very, very front-end developer. Do you know what? It was so easy being a web developer 12 years ago. You need to know a bit of MooTools. CSS3 made you a rock star. Um, but for the last several years, I've focused exclusively on site speed and, uh, and web performance. So my background is, well, my last full-time job, I suppose, was working for a large um, organization here in the UK where web performance was a really sort of a really key component of, of building a, an effective app slash website. So I just got fascinated with that um, and now do that on a sort of self-employed consultancy basis, which is uh, very, very privileged and very, very fun. And uh, yeah, I'm a very lucky boy. Nice, nice. So what like, what kind of drew you to focusing on performance in the web space? Because like, there's, so, you know, there's so many aspects to development. What, what about performance specifically? Uh, I Honestly, I'm not, I'm not just saying this. I think that's a great question because it makes me very introspective. And I think the reason... I started off as a, des a web designer, right? And I realized, soon realized, I'm not very good. I can't make things look nice. What I can do is I can follow rules. I'm really good at following rules. Um, so with WebPerf, for me, it just became a fascination of like, you can always be a bit faster. You can always improve something. Um, obviously, you know, diminishing returns and at some point it is pointless, uh, but there's always something to measure, something to optimize, something to fix. And I've got a bit of a, maybe an obsessive personality in certain ways. Like I like to really deep dive in things. Um, and WebPerf, it's not unique to WebPerf, not at all, but it just gave me a really good opportunity to deep dive into one specific thing and, and just become engrossed. Nice, nice. So, yeah, I, I guess I think that is as good a point of any to jump into uh, like a talk or a YouTube video that you've been doing recently. Get your head straight. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, correct. Yeah. I'm a, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Is there a written component or anything to that? Or is it, is it just like a talk you've been giving? 
Um, it's just a talk. So um, my my whole thing is I do get very deep dive. I go way deeper than anyone would reasonably expect on one particular topic. And for the last sort of couple of years, I mean, it is as long as that, I've been obsessed with head tags. So I wrote that up into a bit of a talk, um, which I've not been able to give very much because of the pandemic. So I gave it um, in I gave it in San Francisco about a month ago, which was very, very cool. Nice, nice. Is it on, on YouTube, like easy to find, readily available? Yeah, yeah, we can get uh, we can get a link for the show notes for definite. Perfect. Awesome, awesome, cool. So yeah, let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit about it. Um, I, I I have in the show notes here that you open with uh, uh, no, like noting and talking about cardiocentric theory. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I mean, it's very. This is very um, indulgent, right? It's just like for me, I wanted to open the talk with something a little left field. And one thing that's always interested me is just like, not, not to a point where anyone could quiz me about it, but like the whole way that the sort of brain has learned about itself and all that kind of stuff. And I just started seeing parallels in, um, in my client work. Um, historically, humans believed the heart was the most important organ. Uh, they believed it was like where your knowledge and feelings and, and where your, your soul even resided. Uh, and for, for millennia, it was completely glossed over the fact that the brain is actually hugely important. Um, obviously, no one organ is more important than another. But for literally for, for thousands of years, humans believed the heart was like the most important thing. So I just use it as a really cheap segue into um, parallels with the web. Uh, I see it in client work all the time. People just completely gloss over how important the head is, and they focus way more on the body. And it's just, honestly, it's a fairly cheap segue to make me sound quasi-intellectual. Uh, we talk about... Um, yeah, so I just, I just talk about how humans have always had this fascination with stuff below the head, I suppose, uh, and the parallels in, in my web dev work are, are fairly, fairly striking. Enjoying the podcast? Consider hitting that follow button for even more great episodes. Nice. Well, we can we can kind of we can kind of co-opt the the fun Descartian, you know, intellectualism here as a segue here. So yeah, tell us about <laughs> it. Why, why do devs Why do devs not think about the head tag and what should they be thinking about in the head tag specifically? Where should we start? What's the biggest problem? Yeah. So I don't think anyone, no one like intentionally doesn't think about it. I think it's as simple as your head tags are the one part of the page that no one ever sees. They're invisible. Like unless something has gone drastically wrong, no one ever sees the head tags. Uh, And therefore it's harder to spot when things go wrong in them. Um, You need to be really forensic in, in looking for any mistakes or errors. Uh, you can soon see if uh, your JavaScript breaks how your page works or if an image doesn't load. It's a lot harder to see things in the head because they're invisible. So it's not negligence from developers. It's just a very obscure part of the page that um, because you don't see it, you don't tend to think about it as much. Um, yeah, I feel like my impulse there. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, sorry. Uh, so like, I think the second part of your question is what should they be looking out for? Mm-hmm. Honestly, so much stuff, and I'm sure we'll cover it in, in the rest of the podcast, but... Um, High level things would be um, stuff that isn't allowed in there. I see that quite a lot. There are certain things that aren't allowed in the head tags. There's some like interesting trivia around that, and also um, just stuff that could live elsewhere. So the stuff that can go in your head tag could go elsewhere. Um, it's just about being conservative, keeping them as small as possible, I suppose. Yeah. So what? Um, I guess yeah. You, you noted some like weird, interesting uh, like trivia surrounding what isn't isn't allowed in the head tag. Tell me about that. All right. So. Um, the fundamental part or like the thing with the web is it's like inherently and infinitely backwards compatible. So 
Chrome 104 will still correctly render the first web page ever made, which is a huge responsibility for browser vendors, like a huge responsibility. Uh, but that means that um, we've got to support a long tail of the web. That also means that um, old browsers need to be able to manage new things well. So if someone's stuck on a browser, maybe a corporate machine, they're stuck on like Chrome 70, that still needs to honor new things. What that makes what makes that very, very interesting is um, there is a, there's a finite list of elements that are legally sort of like, as per the spec, allowed in your head tags. That list can never change because as soon as, if, if the W3 or someone decided, oh, we've got this new element, you can put that in your head tag. Any browser that was, or any version that was released before that decision to add a new element isn't going to handle it properly. So the way it manifests itself currently is people like might put a span or a div or an input in their head. Browsers see that and think, whoa, this isn't allowed here. Like you're not allowed that in the head tags. So on the fly, the browser early terminates the head. So I see it all the time with cross-site request forgery tokens. It'll be input type equals hidden. It'll be in the head tags. And any browser that sees that will be like, whoa, you're not allowed an input here. This must be an error. And the browser will on the fly close the head tag early and it will push that input and everything after it into the body tags, which is when you do start to get problems, things do become visible. You do see uh, things get broken. Um, so yeah, that's why, and this is the real trivia bit, um, the link element, so link rel equals style sheet, link rel equals preload, link rel equals pre-render, link rel equals canonical. That is like, um, yeah, everyone's got that, that drawer in their kitchen where you just keep all the miscellaneous crap. You can't think of a place for this place, so it goes in that one drawer. It's like a dumping ground for everything. That's what the link tag has become for the head. Any new functionality that is added to the head tags is added via the link tag. So link rel equals pre-render. Basically, we just hang everything off the link tag now. Um, it's become a dumping ground. So that's why we've got so many things attached to the link element. Because it's, it's just like a miscellaneous dumping ground for new features we want to add to the head, but we can't do via a, a, a new element. Why, why are, why is the, the head, I guess, why is that problem unique to the head tag? Cause like we add new tags to the body periodically, right? Like there's new tags that didn't exist in old versions, but we don't worry about old browsers not handling those well. Why do we worry more about the, the, the tags in the head? Do you know what? That's a really good question. And I'm not entirely sure. I think what it seems like is it's just somehow hard coded somewhere that browsers should sort of almost throw an error if they encounter something they don't recognize. So I think there's basically at some point there was a finite list made of legal elements for the head and that now can't be changed. And I presume that list wasn't ever created for the body. Because you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Like if we can add things to the body, if we can create new elements like picture or source or we can create uh, whatever. Yeah, there's like article template tags now, like all kinds of stuff, yeah. Exactly, it stands to reason we should be able to add those to the head. Uh, I think it must be a historical legacy thing that we just can't. It does seem like a bit of a um, a bit of a restrictive design, doesn't it? Like uh, to, to, to create that finite list and, and leave it that way. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're always, it's always a balance, right? Like it, it could just be something in the spec where it's like, oh, the body, like it's in the spec that the body needs to be able, when rendering the body, browsers need to be able to handle un, in, like, unexpected uh, tags. But the head, like if it hits something unexpected, it's supposed to, you know, throw an error, like it's meta information, as it were. It could well be. And do you know what? I reckon that's going to be homework for me now to work that out, because that is a very good question. And I'm amazed no one's asked me that before, because it's a really, seems like quite an obvious question now. No offense. No, no worries. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, it's all, it's all good. Um, Cool. But yeah, that, that makes sense to me. So yeah, you also, I guess that kind of 
that touches on something that you spoke briefly about before on errors like being invisible when they're in in the head and not really observable at all. Why why is that? Because my my um, I don't know, my, my impulse would be like, well, if there's something breaking in the head, it's going to like break something on the page, most likely. Like if my font isn't loading or something, it's going to not render correctly. Why are head tags or things happening in the head tag particularly invisible? Uh, okay, so what I mean by uh, problems is, I mean, specifically from a site speed point of view. So um, a missing fab icon, for example you would notice that in the browser tab. So you would. there are certain errors in the head you would notice. Or, yeah, if your Google Fonts isn't loading properly, you will notice that in the body. From a performance point of view, though, um, it's not until you start interrogating the page, like with web page test or with dev tools, it's not until you do it deliberately that you're going to find the errors in the head from a performance point of view. So in the talk, I hit up on some really obscure things that only affects about 8,500 web pages on the entire internet. Like the entire internet, there's only about 8,500 pages actually affected. Um, and that's just like uh, if you've got a meta tag for your content security policy anywhere inside the head tags or anywhere in the middle of the head tags, sorry, you're going to get double downloads and you're going to get um, just loads of problems. It's going to slow things down dramatically. Uh, I had a client roll out to most of those 8,000 sites actually were controlled by the same client. Uh, they rolled this thing out and they were they were just terrified. They were like, all these sites, this network of sites has just slowed down dramatically. And they were throwing money at hosting solutions. They were like, well, the problem must be Cloudflare. It must be the host. It must be this. It must be that. And they spent thousands maxing out all their sort of hosting accounts. And I was like, well, if you look at it through web page tests or, or like a, a, a waterfall, you can actually see the problem's not on the server at all. Um and it's one, of those, it's one of those, like, it's easy if you know the answer kind of things. And that's a lot of my work is, it's easy if you know the answer. Um, my client was stressing about hosting kind of things. Like, is it is the, is the server slower? They're not beefy enough. And I just ran one waterfall test. And I was like, okay, well, your problem is clearly in the head because of X, Y, and Z. And I can see that. Um, but you have to go looking for it deliberately because visibly, the site rendered just fine. I mean, I mean very, very slowly, but it rendered just fine. So when I talk about the errors being invisible, uh, I'm talking from a pure web perf point of view, and you do need to go and look at it from a different angle. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense. Is there, um, let me see, like, are there are there particular tools? I mean, you mentioned like it's 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 one of those kinds of problems where it's easy if you know the answer already, but it can be hard to like know what you're looking for, what might be going wrong. Is there like you know if 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 devs want to check their own sites for you know the health their health in this area, what do you what do you recommend? Um, well, a bit of a shameless self promotion. I, I developed a little tool, a little CSS sort of plugin called CT, as in computer tomography, like a, a CAT scan, a CT scan. We'll stick a link to that in the show notes as well. But um, all these all these rules around the head tag are very fiddly, and some are a bit counterintuitive, and some are actually um, some actually work contra to each other. Some are, some are a bit, um, not paradoxical, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but some of these things just seem a bit nonsensical. So I've built a tool called CT, where a developer can just drop that in their code base, or you can use it as a bookmarklet, if anyone remembers bookmarklets. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I do, I remember them. It'll just inspect your head, and it will say, swap these two lines around, or uh, this bit of JavaScript is blocking this HTML, blah, blah, blah. So you can do it. I mean, I've built a tool that makes it very, very easy. Nice. Uh, without that tool or before that tool was invented or created, sorry, um, it was just a very, not laborious, um, but I've got like um, 
I've been doing this so long, I've got like a sixth sense with waterfall charts. If developers are interested in looking more forensically, i.e. going beyond this tool and looking forensically, I don't have, obviously we're not recording or screen sharing, so people just have to sort of visualize what I'm about to describe. If you're ever debugging Chrome, it's dead easy to see where your head tags are because Chrome loads all web pages in two phases. So if you open DevTools and go to the network panel or you run a web page test and you're testing in Chrome, you will see an initial bunch of requests all happening at the exact same time. And that's going to be JavaScript, CSS in the head. Then you might see one or two uh, image requests like in a separate batch of work. And then the third thing you'll see is a big, just boom, a big waterfall of the rest of the body. So it makes it dead easy to proxy where your problems are. You look at um, a waterfall chart and you, in Chrome, you can see immediately, there's my head tags. It's a few star sheets, a few images, uh, uh, sorry, a few star sheets, a few scripts. Then the body is very visibly separate. Or an even simpler pro tip, because you can't load images out of the head tags, because if you put an image tag in the head, it'll throw an error and it'll move it into the body. The very first image tag that you see in a waterfall chart is a, is a guarantee that you're in the body. So everything before that first image request is your head tags. That's the easiest way to proxy it. Oh, nice. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And it's easy to filter and find those in DevTools and you can like pin it and find, find a baseline from there. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. So I guess, yeah, we can kind of talk, talk some specifics then there is... Maybe hmm, an interesting way to discuss this. So, so we're talking about the way that Chrome is making requests based on how it's parsing the page. Does that behavior inform like how we should be structuring data in any way? Like that that loading pattern. Does that help us decide what should and shouldn't be in the head tags or what order things should be in? Oh yeah, 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 very much. Um, Chrome has got a very meticulous uh, scheduling and queuing uh, logic, I guess. Uh, if you look at Safari, it's quite indiscriminate. Safari just is like, boom, just request everything in the, in the HTML. It does it all at the same time. Chrome is a lot more deliberate. Um, Chrome will actually create like a nice little shopping list of things that it wants. So things that um, any blocking CSS in the head is going to be given a highest priority. Chrome assigns it a priority of highest, which means dedicate a lot of bandwidth to this, request it early, request it fast. Uh, the next thing would be blocking or synchronous JavaScript in the head. That gets high priority. Now, as soon as you move that JavaScript out of the head and into the body, it'll get medium priority. So what that means is if you've got a JavaScript file that is just needed to make one little widget in the page interactive, maybe don't have that in the head. Maybe move that into the part of the page where the widget is so that it doesn't block the rendering of the whole page. And it also means that Chrome can actually sort of simmer down and sort of relax a bit with how it requests it. And it won't donate bandwidth to a lower priority file uh, that it could have given to a higher priority one. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, the way we actually construct our pages in general can affect uh, scheduling and queuing and, and requesting. Uh, Safari is, like I say, a little more um, indiscriminate. It will just tend to request everything as fast as it can, uh, which actually seems to work out because Safari is almost always faster than Chrome. So Safari has much less logic, but seems to operate a lot quicker. I think Chrome operates more towards, or optimizes, sorry, more towards edge cases. Chrome's a far more prevalent browser. Um, well, Safari's iOS, right? And iOS is a very privileged, very Western thing. Whereas Chrome, heavily, heavily tied to Android, more likely to be used in more emerging economies. So I think Chrome 
is just uh, more optimizing towards edge cases and making slower geographical reason regions a lot faster. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Whereas Safari can just get away with, well, there's fast devices generally using fast countries, whatever, and they're just a bit a bit less forensic. Yeah, yeah. There's less less conservative with bandwidth maybe as well. Like there's just like maybe Chrome is trying to figure out what requests actually need to be made before it makes them, stuff like that versus just firing everything off. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. And, you know, it's kind of, it's probably one of those things too. Like like you said, Chrome seems a little bit more defensive. Like it's, it's the new, like, you know, Safari is the new IE and they're like, oh, well, it's working in everything but Safari. It's like probably because they're just, you know, trying to optimizing for a much narrower case. Um, yeah. Hey, this is Emily, one of the producers for PodRocket. I'm so glad you're enjoying this episode. You probably hear this from lots of other podcasts, but we really do appreciate our listeners. Without you, there would be no podcasts. And because of that, it would really help if you could follow us on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to bring you conversations with great devs like Evan Yu and Rich Harris. In return, we'll send you some awesome PodRocket stickers. So check out the show notes on this episode and follow the link to claim your stickers as a small thanks for following us on Apple Podcasts. All right. Back to the show. Okay, you mentioned one, like pulling script tags out of the head when they might not be necessary for like a bulk of the logic that's occurring on the site. Are there any other easy wins stuff that maybe doesn't need to be in the head tag that is often included? Um, not much. I mean, some third parties that are asynchronous. So actually, if you've got, if you've got a file in the head, any file that with a defer attribute on it, you might as well pull it out of the head. Uh, it's defer by definition. Like the spec says defer means that this file will run at DOM content load. So it doesn't matter where in the page the file is, it will always run at DOM content load. So in essence, you might as well stick that near the closing body tag. Um, when it comes to practice, what you'll notice is that even though defer will run always at DOM content load, if you have it in the head, it will get requested marginally earlier than if you put it at the closing body. So uh, it's not like a, it's not a blanket rule. You would need to uh, uh, like look at your own site and see. Um, but yeah, deferred scripts can almost always be moved out of the head because they are always guaranteed to run late anyway. And the other one I often recommend is um, it's very specific, but the Facebook um, sort of like tracking stuff. Um, I just recommend because that's not needed to build the page at all. Like it's completely. Most ad blockers are going to block it anyway. Um, so it's not necessary. It's not required to build the page. Anything like that, either stick it in a tag manager or stick that near the closing body tag. Just stuff that that stuff that doesn't need to be in the head. Gotcha. Tell me more about how a tag manager can like abstractly help with this problem. So a quick prime for anyone who doesn't know, doesn't know what a tag manager is. Basically, as a developer, you'll get asked, oh, can we put analytics on the site? And you can do that. And then the next day, it's like, oh, can we put this on the site? And you think, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit busy, but I'll try it after lunch. And the next day you're asked, oh, can we put the Pinterest thing on the site? And as a developer, you're just like, this needs to go in a backlog. Like, I'm, I can't just keep having these on-the-fly requests. As a marketing team, you're going to be thinking, why is it taking so long just to get the Pinterest thing on the site? So what developers do now is they put a tag manager on there, and then the marketing team can go and copy and paste effectively whatever they like into a tag manager and deploy it via that conduit. Now, the good thing about tag managers, and I am generally pro-tag manager, is that if your tag manager is asynchronous, Everything inside it is asynchronous by default, so it moves a lot of stuff off the critical path. Um, the flip side to that is that, um, and this is tragic, right? As a developer, you will have 
um, linting inside of your in your text editor, you've got pre-commit hooks. You'll have local like tests. You'll have end-to-end tests and unit tests. You'll have um, CI. You'll have security auditing. You might be PCI compliant. You might have to have like actual security audits. You've got all of these things that effectively stop you getting code to live, right? <laughs> they stop you getting code to production. You've got your automated tests. You've got all this stuff that just means that as a developer, you are second-guessed every step of the way. With a tag manager, your marketing team could literally go and copy and paste a 15-year-old answer from Stack Overflow, put it straight into production with no QA, no testing, no nothing. Um, I've had, here in the UK, it's a big, it all sounds like a, like a made-up story because it's convenient numbers, but they're a billion-pound retailer here in the UK. It's very convenient. It's around one billion, but like uh, they, move, they move about a billion pounds a year. And they took their own site offline by pasting something dodgy into a tag manager. <laughs> like, and the first thing is that all the developers were stressing, like, what have we done? What did we deploy this morning? What's, what's, you know, what's happened? Has anything changed in, on prod? Is anything, what's happened? And so one of them, one of the developers eventually worked out, oh, no, someone's pasted something to tag manager, which just hides the page. <laughs> so the site wasn't down. It was just invisible. Uh, but tag managers, when used properly, they can abstract a lot of the third-party noise off of the critical path. And, and make everything asynchronous, kind of by default. Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I hadn't really, I hadn't really considered potential performance improvements by via using a tag manager. But I guess if you're not thinking about it otherwise, then it's like, oh well, if we're in a tag manager, we can kind of lean on whatever you know, whoever whoever is managing the tag manager, developing it, like to kind of have your best interests at heart in that they want your page to load quickly generally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. One um, yeah. one really interesting technique, and I've only seen it, as far as I'm aware, I've only seen it once. There's a retailer here in the UK called Shoe, uh, and they sell, predictably, they sell shoes. And um, their old head of e-commerce was a very, very performance-focused uh, guy. And um, he actually... He like instilled this or like started this thing of using two tag managers. So there's one tag manager that goes in the head, and only a very small number of people have login details for that one. And that has your analytics, anything that's needed to build the page or needed for business insights, needed for stuff, important stuff. That tag manager goes in the head. They had a second tag manager, which was in the, the closing body tag. And in there, it would be stuff like, okay, here's your Facebook retargeting, here's your Pinterest retargeting, here's all your stuff that's like, a, potentially going to be blocked by uh, an ad blocker anyway. B, isn't needed to build the page uh, and can happen after the fact. Like All that stuff can run while someone's browsing, whereas actually rendering the page is a blocker to them browsing. So uh, that's a really smart idea, but it just has the operational overhead of running two tag managers, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't seem doesn't seem like a, like a terrible idea at all. Um, nice. So that's interesting because uh, one of the points you make in your talk is like concerning self-hosting and what URLs are actually being requested. So how does that how does that kind of play into this equation and why do you make that recommendation? So a lot of the points we're going to talk about are instantly mooted if uh, files are asynchronous. So um, Google Analytics, for example, is asynchronous. So we can leave that on the googleanalytics.com domain with no worries. The problem comes when a file is synchronous and hosted on a third-party domain. And there are several different problems that happen or that sort of manifest themselves. The first problem from a performance point of view is that just finding that domain is costly. Doing the DNS, TCP, TLS can be hundreds of milliseconds. Um, I've saved clients hundreds of milliseconds and then by extension, 
hundreds of thousands of dollars a year um, just by self-hosting static files, like people linking out to code.jquery.com, don't do it. It's going to cost you hundreds of milliseconds to find that file. If the file's versioned, it is by definition like a static file. So there's no dynamicism, dynamic, whatever. There's no dynamic aspect to it. Exactly. So you don't. So you can safely self-host that. Um, other things like if that third party has an outage, you're kind of done for. Um, if if you were linking to code.jQuery and you've got synchronous jQuery getting called into the head, and code.jQuery goes down, which I don't know if it has, and I'm not picking on jQuery. This could easily happen with Google Fonts. It could happen with them. Um, any Unix-based browser is going to have uh, basically the page is going to be blank for 80 seconds. So if that third party has an outage, Chrome or any browser, sorry, is going to just keep trying to find that file for 80 seconds. It's an OS level thing. A TCP time timeout on Unix is set to 20, uh, 80 seconds. On Windows, it's only 20. But best case scenario, your Windows users see a blank page for 20 seconds. That's enough for someone to believe the site is down, potentially go elsewhere. Um, so yeah, self-host all the way. Um, interesting things are things like Optimizely, uh, which has to be synchronous because it has to run experiments, but is also dynamic. And you have to go and link out to like cdn.optimizely.com. That's very, very expensive. So one uh, technique uh, which Casper mattresses used, this is actually very, very smart. What they do is just every 15 minutes, they would curl the cdn.optimizely.com JavaScript file uh, onto a locally hosted version that they had themselves, and that would save them hundreds of milliseconds, made them hundreds of thousands of dollars a year um, by having the benefit of the dynamic file, but every 15 minutes or so, just curling it into uh, a file they hosted themselves. So they got kind of that hybrid benefit of optimizing is managing the functionality, but they're still getting to self-host it. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So is there... I guess why why is it that ex, like requesting an external file is so much inherently slower? Um, simply opening TCP connections. So the web for the most part runs on TCP/IP. Um, H3 runs on UDP, so it's a little different. But fundamentally, opening connections to new domains comes at a cost, and that's a time cost. Um, so a, a DNS lookup is usually pretty fast, but if it's an origin that the browser's never hit before, that IP address won't be cached. So that could be hundreds of milliseconds. TCP could be another couple of hundred SSL or TLS. I've seen cases recently, a very, 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 very high profile case. Uh, and I've actually been in talks with them about it because they're like surprised to see it as well. Right away, you can lose on a, on like a three fast 3G, slow 4G connection. You can easily lose a second for every domain you're trying to hit. Um, so yeah, that's the performance cost. Yeah, yeah. So is there, let's see, um, you know, say say you're a dev and you got head tag and you have all these third-party requests you're making at the top. How do you go about figuring out which of those, like, are safe to pull in? We said, like, version things are easy. Is there anything else which may, you know, indicate that this should be something that would be easy to self-host, uh, you know, deliver yourself? Um, I think the only thing is static files. So if it's got a version in there, that's, that's your candidate immediately. Um, the, the things I see most commonly are, and also, it's, it's really bad practice, and I wish people would stop doing it. Uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily want anyone to go out of business, but like Unpackage, for example, UNPCKG, whatever it's Unpackage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, 
that method of linking to files is slow by default. It's an anti-pattern. And I'm, I'm not trying to like be mean to anyone, but the fact that site exists is a problem because it encourages people to do this. And it's like, well, you're leaving your files on someone else's infrastructure. That's obviously a risk. I mean, imagine, imagine the... Um, if someone just did a, a denial of service attack against Unpackage, I probably shouldn't say that because that might give someone nasty an idea. But like, imagine the havoc that would cause across the web, right? Um, so even though sites existing like um, CDNJS or like js.cloudflare.com or whatever whatever that is, all these services existing in the first place is a huge anti-pattern that encourages this, encourages people to do this. I mean, the flip side is that if any of those files on those third parties are async, it's all mooted. It's safe. I wouldn't. I still. Would, I still wouldn't do it. I'd still self-host them. But we're only worried about sync. Only worried about synchronous files. And basically, yeah. As soon as that's a static file, whether that's jQuery, whether that's Google Fonts, whatever it is, just try and try and self-host them. Gotcha. I guess as a counterpoint, would it not make sense to again, like, if, like again, we're talking about the overhead of DNS, like IP lookup. If we can get all, like, if we could get everything that isn't locally requested from some other domain, does that save us a little bit of time? Like one specific other domain? Um, no, not really. So the problem we've got, it's, it's not even just the DNS, TCP, and TLS. There's things like files have these priorities. I've mentioned that earlier. So like Chrome will assign highest priority to certain files, lowest to others. Um, within TCP streams, those files can be cross-referenced against each other. So a server and a browser could coordinate and say, okay, well, we've got these, this shopping list and this TCP stream should dedicate 100% of its bandwidth to this file and then to this, and then to this, and then to this. That can only happen within TCP streams, and TCP streams could only happen on the same IP address. The moment you've got like one style sheet on your domain and one style sheet on Google Fonts, those TCP streams can't see each other, so those files can't be prioritized against one another. So that's another another thing we're losing. So even if you... I mean, I'm working with some pretty big clients at the moment who've got like cdn.com, client.com and they've got nearly all of their files coming from there if you're cramming like 90 percent of your files over a third party domain that's not as bad because you're kind of inverting the problem aren't you like you're only requesting the html from yourself uh, but even still i would always recommend I've, I've got a really really big client at the moment and their biggest sticking block is organizationally they're very siloed so what they've got is like um api.soandso.com They've got uh, static.whatever.com and all these different teams have different subdomains. And you can see it in waterfall charts. I did a proof of concept where we collapsed all those domains into one. And it was like a second faster, which is a huge, huge number. Huge number. Yeah. It seems it seems almost like counterintuitive because I guess I get it makes sense. It makes sense from like the performance, you know, like client browser side. But I understand organizationally why big teams end up doing this, right? Like API, CDN, all these things. And like, I feel like that's pretty common. So like, is, 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 is the answer, I guess, is there, is there any other, anything changing here? Is there any other end game or is it always, just, is it eventually going to be, you have to start hosting everything from like the root domain that the browser is sitting on, or is there anything else that can be done? So yeah, the client I'm talking about at the moment, I said to them, look, I know you're never going to do this. You would need a, you need a reorg. And it's one of the biggest, one of the biggest organizations in the UK. And it's like, I know this is never going to happen. So it's a recommendation, but the actual technical aspect is the least of it. It's like the way your organization works is not going to, 
So for them, there is no end game other than computing at the edge. So I, the proof of concept I made for them was using um, an edge worker with Cloudflare. And you can just proxy files to a different origin. And what is wild is even the overhead of proxying files to a different origin, the overhead of doing that was less than actually serving the files from different origins. So the proof of concept, I sort of said to them, look, this has an overhead of routing these files to another domain. But even routing those files through that other domain is faster than requesting from five different ones. Um, so you could you could fix the problem at the edge with sort of like um, a Cloudflare worker or or any kind of edge compute kind of thing. That's interesting. So so how 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 in again I, I don't I don't want to like get too in the weeds here, but in in this scenario where there was all these specific subdomains that were being requested before, and then you were like flattening them in a worker to make all those requests go out, how did you determine in the worker which subdomain the actual resource lived at? It was a pretty manual process. I can't remember exactly what the code was. It was a while ago. Uh, it's a boiler. It's a boilerplate, but uh, you have to you have to basically pass in a certain request header for, for how I did it. So like to override a host, so you have passing an X host thing, and any request that has the X host header, you just then map that to a hard coded alternative domain. So that proof of concept was only a proof of concept. Uh, it was very hard coded. Yeah, but you could. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, feasibly, you could add some. JavaScript to the front end that like makes all those requests go to whatever domain you actually want them to be going to, and then it's like uses another header to direct your worker to tell it where to go. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, yeah, we have had really good luck on a smattering of projects like using edge workers, and it's insane how fast Cloudflare specifically edge workers are. Like they're they're so they're so good. <laughs> yeah, they've they've opened up a lot of opportunities for me with clients. So. Um, when I tend to work with clients, I don't I don't work with clients for very long, to be honest. It'll be only a couple of weeks at a time, and I, I never get given right or deploy access. It would take longer to get me set with local environments than it would to actually do the audit. So Cloudflow or Edge Workers in general give me a really good opportunity to show them proof of concepts. Like, I haven't deployed this. I've done this with an Edge Worker. I've rooted it through my own, like, cssswizardry.dev domain. But here's what it would look like, in theory, if you were to do it yourself. Uh, so Edge Workers are really good proof of concepts for me to demo things to clients. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. We yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, we have it's like permanent solutions in there and we also have like little it's easy easy for quick proof of concept spin up stuff and again it's like pretty performance so you can get a like a pretty close to what we'd actually see in prod if we had a deployment out. So yeah, we've we've had similar Yeah, they're great on there. similar experiences. Um yeah, so I think kind of the last big point I've got here in my notes concerning that like the content of the head tag itself and like where requests are going is the order of things in the head tag or a couple points concerning the order of things. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, like why does order matter? What can and can't we do in certain order in the head tags? Yeah. So um, like I said, anything that's asynchronous is like removed from the equation. So we won't, we won't discuss anything asynchronous because it doesn't block anyway. Um, but there are certain fundamental things about how all browsers work that a lot of developers simply aren't aware of, um, which is not their fault, just simply no one's told them. The biggest shocker that I tend to um, see, or the, the thing that shocks developers the most, CSS blocks JavaScript execution. If you put your style sheets first, none of your CSS is going uh, none of your JavaScript is going to run until the um, CSS is fully paused. Uh, and that terrifies a lot of developers because they think, well, CSS is like render blocking and it should go first. Well, that CSS is going to block the execution of any subsequent JavaScript. 
and that can have profound effects. Like in in the worst case scenarios, um, I've seen clients do, like lose you know nearly a second because their CSS is blocking their JavaScript. The reason it does this is very simple. Um, the JavaScript could ask a CSS question. It could say like get computed style. What you know? What's the color of the background of the body? Thing is, the browser doesn't know if that JavaScript is going to ask a CSS question until after it's executed the JavaScript. There's no pre-parser. There's no kind of look ahead. So what the browser will defensively do is if it knows it's currently downloading any CSS, it will not run the JavaScript until it's downloaded and parsed that CSS, just on the off chance that the JavaScript asks a CSS question. Nine times out of ten, especially in the head, it will not be asking a CSS question because the, the body's not rendered yet, so there's nothing to get computer style of. So nine times out of ten, JavaScript in the, in the head is not going to be asking css questions, but even still, browsers will not run that JavaScript until the CSS has been dealt with. Um, the way this affects developers in the real world is uh, usually with analytics packages. Uh, what you'll find is that there'll be inline sort of async snippets, uh, synchronous JavaScript that create asynchronous in injected um, files. They won't run until the CSS is finished, so they'll find that, like, their A-B testing tool or their tag manager or their analytics doesn't fire until quite late, which is all being blocked by the CSS that's in flight. So that's one thing. That's one really important thing with uh, the order of the head tags is that, yeah, your CSS will block your JavaScript from running, which can be which can be very detrimental. And there's other simpler stuff like um, character encodings, for example. Um, HTML is parsed line by line, so the browser can only deal with things as it finds them. Most browsers are going to be UTF-8, but you might have a page that's UTF-16. The browser, if you put your character encoding halfway down the head tag, what the browser will do is it will start parsing the page in the browser saying, which is probably UTF-8. Then it will find the UTF-16 character encoding halfway down the head, and it'll be like, oh, fuff. brilliant, got to start again now, and it'll reparse the page. So you basically, it'll have to parse everything previously uh, again. Uh, so things like that, it, all things like that um, are important for in the terms of source order. Nice, nice. Does the, the the CT scan tool you put together look for these these kinds of things, like ordering? Uh, yes, yeah, so it looks for order. Uh, it also looks for things like, it's it's very crude, but it's like CT, right? It's written in CSS, which is the most inappropriate syntax for this kind of work. <laughs> it was just, honestly, it's so unfit for purpose. My background is CSS, and I just wanted to kind of mess around and do something fun. Um, it's very crude, but part of what CT will do is it will use like an nth child selector and it will say if it finds a meta character encoding or a meta CSP that isn't nth of nth child five or less, basically it will just check, was this meta tag more than the fifth child? If so, throw it throw a warning. Um, so it will say is like, if you've, if you've got like 10 elements in the head before you've got your character encoding, CT will notice that and say, move this as early as you can in your head tags. Gotcha. Nice. Is this, is the CT, is it, is it usable? Can I, can I put it in the middle of like a, like a linting or a CI process somewhere? Um, I mean, you could, but it wouldn't be much use to you because it's just a visible thing. So it wouldn't, it isn't, it, yeah, because it's just written in CSS. All it will do is throw a red box around an element that is faulty. So it, it, it wouldn't be any use. I mean, you could put it in CI, but it would be of no use to you because you have to look at it, basically. You have to have eyeballs on it. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right, then I kind of have one one last kind of in the weeds question here that is is concerning this. Um, I guess this whole idea. So we're kind of talking about like the, all these these 
things to be aware of and difficulties in like how to structure head tags, where to put things and stuff. And I'll, I'll say just kind of anecdotally, I feel like over the past several years, I've been having to do less and less um, like mindful structuring and putting data in my head tag at all, because I feel like my tools, like my bundler and then like even like Webpack and everything, like my build pipeline is doing a lot of that lifting for me. Do you think that this problem is becoming less of one over time as our like build tooling becomes better? Or do you think that there are still pits we're falling into? Nah, you're good. That's a very good question. Um, this gives me an opportunity to show off. Uh, a lot of those tools are getting it wrong. Um, one of the biggest, biggest, biggest front-end frameworks, I'm not going to name them because that would be rude, but one of the biggest ones was getting it quite dramatically wrong. And I, the, the co-founder is a really nice guy, and I just dropped him a message on Twitter like, hey, do you want to work together on this, get it fixed? And he's very receptive, and I just built some proof of concept, and I said, look, this is how your sort of framework's currently doing things, um, suboptimal. Would you mind discussing it? And he was very receptive. So now that framework is now doing things much, much better. Uh, I got a lot of pushback from other people on his team. He was he was great. He was like, yeah, you've proved it to me. Like He had, very, he had, he had a complete lack of ego about it. He was great. But they were working alongside uh, other third parties who were like a little more suspicious. So it was a little harder to get through. Uh, but now current versions, newer versions of this are getting it way better. But certain things are still getting it wrong. And do you know what? It's not even new tools. It's older tools. Like uh, if you look at things like Magento, you get so little access to the head tags. Drupal, whatever. Older tools get it, get it wrong as well. Um, so it's quite unfortunate. Sometimes I'll work with clients. I'm like, oh, just change these around. It's like, yeah, we can't. We don't have access to that. And that's really annoying because... And it kind of, in a weird way, it sort of proves my point. People are just generally unaware of how important their head tags are to the point where people who build CMSs or build frameworks, they sort of set off on the wrong foot from the outset. Um, so part of my part of what I've done in the last couple of years is I've reached out to different frameworks and, and tools. And, and uh, generally, people are really receptive. And it's everyone wants to push the web forward. So I've, I've not had any pushback. Nice. Nice. Good. That's, that's good to hear. So it sounds it sounds like still still something to be aware of, even if you're using the latest and greatest like frameworks, build tooling, and everything. Like still still be mindful. Um, cool, cool. Well, I feel like that's kind of uh, as as good a note to wrap this up on as any. Uh, is there anything else you want to kind of point listeners to uh, projects you're working on? Um, I've tell you what we can if you don't mind we could we could give listeners a discount code because I've just um, we'll we'll work together and get like a specific discount code for this podcast i guess but um i think i think we can do that yeah <laughs> sure <laughs> basically a couple of weeks ago i released a new video course um one of my most um my favorite is bits of workshops that i run and the bit that well, it's a bit that i enjoy a lot but attendees seem to love it it's like secret and hidden bits of dev tools for performance testing um chrome specifically is the most powerful fully featured set of developer tools for performance like hands down but a lot of the features are just under or even unexplained. Um, so I made a video course a few weeks ago, which I had a ton of fun putting together. It's it's like 12 videos long, and it just goes into like, look at all these cool hidden tips and tricks and features that you didn't know existed. So that's that's my that's been my current side project. My my, my main side projects at the moment are riding bikes because um, it's nice and sunny. So I'm not really. I see your bike in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but my only my only side project really um, for personal stuff, non-client stuff, has been this video course. So um, we'll get a little discount code together for listeners uh, 
if and if, if people want to have a look at it, they're more than welcome to go and grab a copy. Cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on and chatting with me, Harry. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for kind of letting me get in the weeds a little bit and, and pick your brain. Um, it's been awesome. No, it's been great. Uh, and like, I don't want to sound like patronizing or anything, but you have had some very good questions there, stuff I've not considered before. So uh, yeah, no, thank you for that. I really enjoyed it. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, again, it was, it was my pleasure. So yeah, thank you so much. And hopefully we can, uh, we can chat again soon and have you back on. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd be down for that. Cool. Yeah, thanks for your time. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. You can find us at Pod Rocket Pod on Twitter, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.